Okay. So that's our text for today. Now, we haven't seen each other in a while, and so some of you might have forgotten, like, who I am and my family and everything. And so, and maybe if you don't know me, so I've got a wife named Caitlin, and I've got two little, little boys, Jackson and Hayes. Jack is going to turn three very soon here at the end of the month of June, June 24th. And Hayes actually turned one during quarantine. And one of just, like, the regular rhythms of my life that's been a new thing with being a dad is, is the bedtime routine. And, and at bedtime for, for us, you know, Caitlin and I will switch off of who's putting, putting who to bed. But Jack, my three-year-old, has just a very elaborate routine where we're, we're reading all these different books and I'm singing him songs and we pray together. And then one like new little wrinkle that I added to it recently was I just want to fuel his curiosity. And so when I put him into bed, I, I lay him down and we've already done the other stuff. And I just say, Jack, you can ask me any question that you want. So he gets to just ask whatever it is that he wants. He's such a curious little boy, love talking to him. And interestingly, all of, all of Jack's questions are always, hey, Dad, what's your favorite fill in the blank? Just, just every time. Dad, what, what's your favorite? And then he always follows it up with why. And so typically he'll, he'll be like, Dad, what's your favorite crocodile? So I'll say, oh, you know, the, the blue one. And he'll be like, my, I like the blue one too. He'll be like, what's your, what's your favorite cat? What's your favorite book? Last night he asked me, what's your favorite line? And I was just like, my favorite, my favorite line. I think I said like the, the line on the sidewalk or something. So he, he asked us these crazy questions, right? What if, what if one night when I was putting Jack to bed, he said, dad, what's your favorite type of person? Your favorite human? I would probably say like you, man, you and Hayes and your mom. But what if I, instead, I said, Jack, my favorite kind of person is a person with brown eyes. He'd follow up and say, why? And what if I said, well, Jack, people with brown eyes are just better people. They're better. They're, they're superior to people with other colored eyes. Now, you should cringe a little bit as I say that, right? Because there, there's something in us that knows that, like, we, we shouldn't categorize people and their value based on those type of things. Like, it, it's one thing to say, what's your favorite crocodile? And I like, I like the green one or the blue one better than, than the green one. It's a totally different thing when we start talking about human beings. And this is an, an innocent example, right? Put my, my three-year-old to bed. An innocent little moment I could have with him. But guys, listen, this, this same moment the same impulse that I would have to say that, it's the same sin that in the words of James in chapter 1, verse 15, it can become fully grown and bring forth death. And in the text today, what James does is he calls this the sin of partiality. Partiality or, or favoritism. It's the sin that judges some people as superior and others as inferior. Listen, for illegitimate reasons. Illegitimate external reasons like your socioeconomic status or class, the color of your skin, your ethnicity, your gender. James, in our text, he says he calls this making distinctions with evil thoughts. In this word partiality that he uses, it's actually only used three other times in the New Testament. Romans 2 verse 11, Ephesians 6 verse 9, and Colossians 3 verse 25. And each time, it actually is, a, is a, a place where it says that God shows no partiality. He makes no distinctions like that. And the example given each time is either something to do with ethnic groups or social status. 
So this sin of partiality, it's the sin that elevates some people in society by marginalizing and oppressing and discriminating against others. And this sin of partiality is at work in our lives, our lives, your, your life, when we have this tendency to pay attention to certain people, to draw near to certain people and disregard and distance ourselves from others. And again, it can seem small and innocent, like these are just the people that I connect to. These are just the people that I, I more click with, but it can also grow, as James says, to be this devastating sin resulting in things like we've been seeing lately with racial discrimination and violence in our country rearing its ugly head once again. But the example James gave us as we read the passage is actually not from out there on the news, but it's a story from Sunday morning at church. So let's read the first couple of verses again as he gives us this example. Verse 1, he says, My brothers, so Christians, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. And so the the externally like looks like a more valuable person because he's rich man comes in and you actually draw near to him you give him a seat up front you talk to him you welcome him in but you say to the poor man you stand over there you distance yourself from him or worse you you sit at my feet you devalue him this is what James says have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And it's not as if human beings don't come in a whole range of distinction and beautiful diversity, but the problem, the sin comes in when we take these basis in our being superior or inferior to one another and we use it to distance and to separate and to discriminate and to lift some up and some down. And we see this sin of partiality leading to injustice on the news every day. But listen, James this morning is saying to us, before we go to fight this sin in the world, we need to kill it in the church. As much as we turn on the news and we see it out there in the world, and we want to figure out, God, what would you have us do? What James wants to talk about us today is we need to kill this sin in the church. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And what he's going to do is he gives us basically three reasons why the church of all places should be a place where there is no partiality, no favoritism. It should have no place in the church. And more than that, that the church should be at the forefront of the fight for equity and justice and dignity for all in the world. Three reasons why. Number one, we have a foundation for human dignity. Number two, we have an ethic in the church for true justice. And number three, we actually have a partiality. We have a bias, but it's towards mercy. And so I'm going to unpack those th three things with us from the text. Three reasons why partiality has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Number one, we have a foundation for human dignity. We have a foundation for human rights and equality. Look at how James actually corrects them in this story. If you look at verse 1, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Lord of glory. He identifies Jesus as the Lord of glory, saying Jesus is the one where all the glory comes from, all the value comes from. He's the most valuable being in the universe, and therefore, Jesus Christ is the one that gets to make ultimate value judgments about people. He determines the value and the worth of people. And so based on that, what James wants to do is say, I want, I want to reframe the way that you're looking at these two men. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, based on that, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Listen to this. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? He says, that, that poor man that you just distanced yourself Hasn't God chosen so many people that are of low status in the world to actually be heirs of the kingdom? Do you see how the way you're viewing him totally contradicts the way that God views that man? Your view is contradicting God's assessment. And what we're seeing here and what we need to remember and realize is that God sees people differently than we see people. And it's his assessment that counts, not ours. You know what God sees in every single person that's ever been born? What God sees when he looks at everybody, regardless of what they look like, where they came from, what their background is, the sin that remains in their life, what he sees is himself. He sees an image of himself. This is the biblical doctrine of the image of God. That all people were actually valuable because all people were created by God and created, Genesis 1 and 2 says, in his image. To display something of him to the world. And this is the foundation that we have as Christians for human dignity. That we're not valuable because of what we look like or the talent that we bring to the marketplace. We're not valuable because of our age, whether we are elderly or whether we are still a child that has not yet been born in the womb. We are valuable because of who made us, because we are human, because we've been made in his image, period. And this is why it is so devastating when we hear the words of George Floyd and so many others that have said, I can't breathe as they fight for their lives. I can't breathe. We should hear that as Christians and we should immediately think back to the book of Genesis when God creates everything and he creates man and woman in his image. And it says he breathes the breath of life into all of us equally as his creatures. And so when we see human life being taken away, human breath being taken away in such a dehumanizing, devaluing way, it should grieve our hearts because it grieves God's heart. His life mattered because he was made in the image of God with as much dignity and value and worth as every other human being that has ever been made. So part of this, guys, is a, a call to take people more seriously, to see people more seriously. This is a serious sin. James, he compares partiality to adultery and murder in verses 8 through 11 because it's the same root sin at play in all three. It is a way of seeing someone that devalues them, dehumanizes them, objectifies them, an image bearer of God. And it spits in God's face when we do this. Showing partiality does violence to image bearers, just like murder and adultery. 
And so I know that like this, this issue, partiality, favoritism, discrimination, inequality, injustice, there's things that sociologists study and that politicians have to try to figure out solutions to. But what we need to see from the text today is before it's any of those things, first and foremost, the sin of partiality is a theological issue. So we need to take a, a serious look at each other. A serious look at our fellow image bearers of God all across the world. James says the poor, the seemingly most invaluable, insignificant people by worldly standards are actually unbelievably valuable because they have the capacity, he says, to become heirs of the kingdom, to be rich in faith. Do you, like, just to pause on that, do you realize what that means? That somebody who is of so low status in the world is at the same time so of such high status to God. And, and when we look at them, we need to see them that way. C.S. Lewis is an author that had, he had such a great imagination for these things. This is what he says about the way we should view people. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw now, you may be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. We live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Why don't you turn to the person next to you right now on the couch and say, you are a possible god or goddess. <laughs> say, hey, you're no mere mortal. You bear the image of God. This is what Lewis is trying to do. He's trying to say, hey, that poor person, they could be an heir of the kingdom of God. They're made in the image of God. They have the capacity to be redeemed by God. They could inherit eternal life. They could be rich in faith. It is a serious thing to look into the eyes of another human being. And James is trying to give us the proper distinction here, not the evil distinction. He's saying the proper distinction when we look at people is the heavenly distinction, not the worldly, earthly one. So if when we start to gather again on Sunday, if a, if a prominent businesswoman in the city walks into Doxa Church, and at the same time a homeless woman in the city walks into Doxa Church, and we look at them walking in together, we should have absolutely no idea which of those two people will be of more benefit to our community. We don't, we don't know if they're Christians. We should know that they are both so valuable to God despite, despite what the world would say about them. But when they walk in, we, we should not have any ability to make a judgment call on who would be a more valuable addition to our church community because financial riches or financial poverty doesn't tell us anything about spiritual riches. So I just want to pause on that and, and give you some space to think, like, how do you tend to see people? Who, who is the, the person, the actual person you know, or maybe it's just the type of person that if you're honest, you do find yourself distancing yourself from, maybe feeling a little superior to. Maybe you tend to, to demonize people that are of the other political party from you. They're like, this, this is person is less than human. How could they? Maybe you tend to disregard people of the opposite gender. You just write them off. Have you realized or, or do you actually keep your distance from people of other ethnicities than yours? 
you were to be honest, is there, is there a distance between you and your ethnicity and then people that are of a different ethnicity? Do you jump in with the culture and actually look down on people of lower socioeconomic status or do you idolize the rich? What James says to all of this, he says, my brothers, he says, I, I love you, I love you so much, church, but I have to tell you this, partiality has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We Christians of all people have no excuse for this because we stand on the foundation of the image of God. Now, it's not enough to just see people the right way. We actually have to treat them the right way, right? It's one thing to say, I see you. It's a whole nother thing to stand on this foundation of the image of God and actually start to build a society, build relationships in your own life that actually reflects true justice for image bearers. And that's where he goes next. So helpfully, James, he gives us an ethic, a way of life that leads to true justice, a way of treating each other that is right and just and fair for image bearers of God. Look back According to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Okay. So notice how he's actually pitting partiality and love against each other. We can either discriminate against our neighbor or we can love our neighbor. This is the only right and just way to treat an image bearer of God. He calls it the royal law. This is for true justice, a, a vision, a way of life, a royal law. First, see people as your neighbor. See everyone as an image bearer of God. That's step one. But then step two is actually love them. Treat them the way that you would want someone to treat you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love them like you love yourself. Love them like you would want to be loved if you were them. Put yourself in their shoes and say, how would I want to be loved by this other person? He's saying that's how you should love them. And I was just thinking about this this week. I'm like, how do I love myself? What is, what is the main kind of disposition I tend to have towards myself? I don't, I don't think that I'm that awesome. I actually know my flaws better than anybody else does. But you know my, my primary disposition towards myself, the way that I, I love myself? I'm incredibly patient. I'm incredibly forgiving. I put up with myself every day. I pay, so mu- I pay way too much attention to myself, if I'm honest. That's how I love myself. And James is saying, we have this foundation of the image of God, the way that we see people, but we have to build on that with an ethic of true justice, which is to actually love our neighbors in the same way that we love ourselves. Can you imagine if we actually applied this and lived like this in our world? Can you imagine if you applied this to like that, that person that you're thinking of or that type of person that you're, you're thinking of? I want to put a pin in and, and talk about something that I've just had a lot of conversations about in this past week and that I've been thinking a lot about personally. And so many white people right now are realizing that there's like this unintentional, usually sometimes intentional distance between us 
and black people, even other black Christians. There's just this, this distance, and we're trying to figure out what to do about it. And if you're a white Christian, chances are, if you're listening to this, you know and you affirm that your brothers and sisters in Christ that are black and your, your black friends that are not Christians are made in the image of God. You affirm that. Like, that's not a question for you. But here's the sticking point. Beyond that, you don't know what to do. Beyond that, we do, I affirm your dignity, and I, I don't know what else to, to do about this problem. And this is where I think James is so helpful. He says, affirm the dignity of all people made in the image of God, but then love them like you would want to love yourself. I think this starts with talking to our African-American friends, and if we don't have any, we need to start by, by making some. And then once we have a relationship, we need to love them in the same way that we would want to be loved if we were them. Maybe it's as simple as just saying, hey, could you tell me in, in, in whatever way it makes sense for you and in as much patience as you, as you need to take, what is it like to be you right now? Could you, just, could you help me understand? Because I want to love you like I would love myself. And I know myself really well, but I don't know you that well. And so could you help me understand what it's like? The type of, of problem solving that you would want to be done for you if you were in that situation. Isn't that what you would want somebody to do for you? There's, there's so much more to this whole conversation. We're actually going to release a resource later this week of just having that type of a conversation within our own church community. How can we move forward together? But, but what a starting point for us from James. Let's just love our neighbor in the same way that we would love ourselves. Now, it can get complicated. This, this, this ethic for true justice, personal relationships, it's not so hard to figure out. When you think like systemically, it, it is harder to figure out like how, do, how does this ethic of love your neighbor as yourself actually go out into the broader culture and in a bigger way. If we take the example that James uses here of, of the, the rich man and the poor man walking into the church, I think that there's this thing that we tend to do where if a, a poor person walks into church, somebody that we're perceiving as of a low socioeconomic status, we tend to have these questions that come into our, our mind that, that go this way. They say, like, are, is this person oppressed in some way? Are they disadvantaged in some way? Has something happened to them? Is this somebody else's fault? Or is this their fault? Are they, are they lazy? We have, it, like, suspicion mixed with, with questions mixed with, I don't, I don't exactly know what to do with this person. What is the best way for me to help them? And, and so we're faced with this thing of, of what do we do? And here's what James says to that. Here's what James says to that complicated reality of how do we love our neighbor. He says, none of those things, none of those questions should be our first instinct, our first impulse. Look what he says in verses 12 through 13. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. James says, when we come across somebody that is different from us and it's causing us to have questions, our first impulse, our leaning over the edge of our seat thing that we are just dying to do is to show mercy, not judgment, not questioning, not criticizing. It's to show mercy. He actually says the law of liberty demands that we show mercy instead of partiality. That's the demand of the law of liberty. Mercy, here's a little definition. Mercy is giving someone what they don't deserve and what they didn't earn. 
giving someone what they don't actually deserve and what they didn't earn. And so James is saying, like, we should be, our, our, our leaning forward should be to give people not less than they deserve, give them better than they deserve. Whatever image bearer crosses our paths. And here's the crazy thing that he's kind of flipping on his head here. He's actually saying if God has a bias towards anything, if God is partial towards anything, he's actually partial towards mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If God shows partiality towards anyone, it's towards people who beg him for mercy. He says, has not God chosen the poor to be heirs of the kingdom? And so we've got this class tonight that starts called Discipleship 101 that is all about following Jesus. What does it look like to follow Jesus in a really practical way? Listen to what Alec Mateer, who's a commentator on James that I read, listen to what he says about the relationship between mercy and following Jesus. He says, if we would follow the Lord Jesus, then it must be our glory as if it was his to be incessantly, which means constantly, and preponderantly, I think he was British, this means to have an emphasis, okay, to be constantly and to have a strong emphasis, what? On the side of the poor, the underprivileged, the disadvantaged, and the oppressed. It says if we are to follow Jesus, we must also take his side with the underprivileged, the disadvantaged, the oppressed, and the poor. He says to do this is to identify ourselves with the very heart of God. At the deepest part of God's heart, it is mercy. That is the thing he is longing to do for people, not judgment, but mercy. He says this is how we live obediently to the main line of his revealed will. The, the main line. Our gut instinct. The thing we should be overflowing with towards people is mercy. And one of just the, the personal tensions and challenges with this text that I felt this week is that this, this whole scenario of a, a person of high socioeconomic status and a person of low socioeconomic status walking into to Doxa together and me being faced with this choice of like, who am I going to gravitate towards? Who am I going to welcome in? How, what kind of a value statement am I going to make? That scenario, when we open up this building, probably isn't going to happen that often. There, there probably aren't going to be that many lower status, poorer people walking in to Doxa. There's probably going to be a lot of people that, like, like our, our church, for the most part, the people that started this church are of, in like the middle class, and we're going to tend to reach out to and bring the people that are, that are just like us. Unless, unless we hear what James is saying here, Unless we hear what, what Jesus is, is saying here, they're probably, we're probably not going to be faced with this scenario unless in our personal lives we start to get out of our comfort zones and we start to see everybody the way that God sees them. We start to view people as neighbors and we start to love them like we love ourselves and we start to have this just overflowing mercy and compassion coming out of us in personal relationships and we start to, to bring people that are different than us with us into this place. So James is saying to us, show no partiality because not only do we have a foundation for human dignity and an ethic for true justice, but we also have this, this bias as Christians towards mercy. Have you ever thought of just how, how unique the church is? How unique our unity is? Of all the organizations in the world, the church should be the place 
of all places where mercy triumphs. I played football in college and the thing that united us on the football team was our talent and skill at the game of football. So to be an insider on that team, to be in on it, you had to be good at the sport. And so we would walk around campus and we would look down on everybody else that wasn't as good as we were. Our unity actually made us self-righteous and arrogant and looking down on other people. That's what, that's what our unity was based on. What is unity in the church based on? What is like the fundamental thing that we are uniting around? Is it our strength? Is it our morality? Is it our skin color? Is it our socioeconomic status? Is it our gender? It's none of those things. The thing that we rally and unite around in the church is actually our weakness and our need for mercy. That's it. Do you realize that? That is the thing that we all have in common is that we were all so weak, so sinful, so unable to help ourselves that the thing that we all had in common was God, have mercy. We are all beggars if you get down to the core of it. That's what our unity is based on. And if this is our, our unity, if it is our weakness that unites us, not our strength, how could we possibly have a gut impulse towards people that says, you got to earn it to get in here. You're not like us yet. You got to clean up your life. You got to look different. You gotta be like us. If that ever becomes our, our gut impulse, we've abandoned the, like the whole vibe of the gospel and maybe the truth of the gospel. And I know that as a, a white middle-class male, I am pretty much as far away as it gets in this country from being an oppressed minority. Like that's, that's who I am. And it's, it's totally fine, as I said before, that the majority of, of people in DOXA are like somewhere in that, that category. Now, not, not all males, obviously, but that's just like the group of friends and people that came together to start this church. And it's okay for now because we're only two years old. But, but if down the road and even right now, people begin to walk into our church gathering and they get the sense, they just kind of smell it in the air that they can't fit in here that they don't measure up because they're not, they're not white or they're not middle class or they're not wh whatever, fill in the blank. If that's the vibe they start to get, we are betraying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, do, like talking to the Doxa family, there are, there are so many people, and if we're honest, a lot of us used to be these people that are terrified to walk into a church. So scared for fear of being judged and criticized. And, and not even all the time to be judged for, for their sin, but to be judged for their culture or their gender or their lack of education or their clothing or their social skills or whatever it may be, just like walking in, bracing themselves. And do we realize, do we realize what James is saying that Jesus, he moved towards these very types of people in his ministry? This is who he, he moved towards. This is who he was. Beggars, ethnic outcasts, lepers, prostitutes, traitors, thieves, cowards. And like the Jesus that we follow, our instinctive response, our heart towards the suffering and towards the sinners should be mercy. Mercy. And something has gone terribly wrong in the church when people walk in bracing themselves for judgment rather than walking in just ready to relax into the mercy of God and his people. 
And so if we ever begin to speak and act, as James says, in a way that makes people walk in and brace themselves, James says that it is actually us who should be bracing ourselves for the judgment. That's what he said in verse 13. The thing that he is actually trying to convict us of here is not our failure to be harsh enough on sin, but to not be gentle enough towards sinners, towards sufferers, towards all people. And so he says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And I can hear the objection here of, man, mercy, that's great, but we can't get, we can't get soft. We've got to treat people fairly though too, right? Like we've got to have justice. We can't enable people in their sin. We've got to have some consistency around here. Like what if somebody walks in here and they're addicted to drugs? What are we going to do? What if somebody comes in here and, and they've just recently committed Adultery. What if someone comes in here and they have this motive where they actually just want money from the church? What are we going to say from that person? What are, we gonna, are we just going to tell them that it's okay to just stay and be that way? And I would just say this. If you were that person, how would you want the church to treat you? If you were that person walking in here, And if we were right now to say, I want to love them as I would love myself, how would you want the church to treat you? And more than that, when you were that person, how did Jesus treat you? When you were that very same person, that weak person, that person that doesn't know a way out from their sin, how did Jesus treat you? Listen, the answer is that you were a total mess. I was a total mess and I was showed mercy. That's the whole point. We are all just like this poor man dressed in shabby clothing before God with no option but to beg for mercy. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says it like this. He says, for, the, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. This is what Jesus did for us. He left heaven and he came to earth. This is the the logic here. Let me just give it to you in a little logical statement. The mercy of God triumphed at the cross, right? Justice for sin, mercy for sinners. The church is the people that gather around that cross. Therefore, mercy must triumph in the church. Mercy is the pervading tone of us. And Doxa, what, what could be so, so dangerous about us becoming known as a place that has a strong bias for mercy? What if we became known like that in, in our community, like those, those Doxa people? Can you, can you imagine the critiques of us? Those people, they, they are just too patient with one another. Those people, there is too much forgiveness going on in that church. Too much mourning with one another over the things that are burdening them. Too much listening. Too much sacrificing for one another. Why aren't they tearing each other's heads off like the rest of the world over these issues? Why are, why are they showing so much mercy? Why are they slowing down so much to understand each other? Because we are the people that know deeply that this is exactly what God did for us. He showed us mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment in the church. So I'll close with this. Just last week, I was with some friends and we were down at the, the state capitol building and we, we wanted to, to pray. We didn't, we didn't know what else to do. And so we were just trying to 
pray into what seems to be happening around, around the world and in our, in our country right now. And we had this vantage point where we could see all of the, the stores on State Street being, being boarded up. And we were praying the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done in Madison as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done in Madison as it is in heaven. And we're just looking out at our city and even with the wider vantage point of our world and saying like, God, we, we want your kingdom to come. We could even, maybe even see like what it would, would look like, but we don't know what to do. We don't know how to get there. We don't know how to make your kingdom come here. And we all just sensed God saying in that moment, what if Doxa Church, what if the Christians in Madison need to become more like heaven before this city ever will? What if the kingdom of God needs to come more in our lives as individuals and as a community? In these values of the kingdom, the dignity of all image bearers, loving our neighbor as ourselves, a posture, a tone, a vibe, a message of mercy for all. What if that needs to become more of a reality in us before it becomes a reality in our city? Let's pray to that end, Doxa. God, we... We, as, as your people, we long to see the, the world renewed and restored around us. But we know that we have, have work to do of just repentance in our own lives and in our own church, in our own community. God, we, we, we give you permission and ask to, to search us. Search us for, for any way that we have devalued people just based on what they look like or what they sound like or where they came from, not giving them the, the dignity that they deserve. God, we, we repent of, of any of that that is in us, in our community. God, and we, we confess and we repent that we really have loved ourselves more than we've loved our neighbor. We haven't asked the hard questions. We haven't gotten into the uncomfortable places to figure out, like, what would, what would somebody want? What would I want if I was in their position? God, help us to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, and more than anything, our, our cry to you in this time, God, coming out from, from this church and spilling out into the world is for mercy. God, we thank you for the, for the mercy that you poured out for us on the cross. God, and that's the same mercy that we want to extend to others. We want to be a, a culture and a community that just leans in towards mercy. That is our, our gut level hope and response to offer to people mercy. So God have mercy on us. God have mercy on our city, on our country. God kill this sin in our church, wherever it is, and let us take that message out into the world. We love you.